Welcome to the Placebo Magic Podcast, the podcast about teaming up with your superstitious brain. I'm your host, Durmak, the wizard and peasant lord of this vast ten-acre realm of Habdur, also known as Farm Code Gary, also known as Garrison Benson. Greetings, Placebo Mages. Today we're on to part two of our introduction to the Enneagram. If you're not familiar with the Enneagram personality type system, I would go back and listen to the previous episode before this one. Otherwise, no worries. In the last episode, we gave a broad introduction to the system and the nine personality types, and then we did a deeper dive into the feeling center types, two, three, and four. Before we continue with the thinking center types, I want to touch on a few more points about the system in general. So, first of all, your type doesn't change over the course of your life. Of course, we all change and we can all relate to any of the types, but the system is designed with personality dynamics in mind, and it's usually most helpful to view your changes over time through the lens of your type. Any type can express any outward behavior under the right circumstances. The key is why. What are the core uh, motivations and fears? That's what the system's all about, not the surface level stuff. On that note, if you're looking into Enneagram resources, always take descriptions of a type's outward behavior with a grain of salt. There are a lot of stereotypes about each type that are often true, but they can throw you off quite a bit if you get distracted by the surface level and you're not looking at the core. For instance, I'm a type one, the reformer or the perfectionist type, and a lot of Enneagram resources describe ones as being fastidious or overly hygienic or or uh, punctual or super organized. And none of those descriptions of outside behavior sounded like me. So for a while, I didn't think I was a one. I thought I was a four or five until I started to dig in and realize that I couldn't relate very much to their inward um, challenges and their, their, their uh, self-talk. So, though, though I don't express them in the same ways, I have the same core motivations and fears as other ones, and that's what makes me a one. And the more I thought about it, the more I realized that I do have various kinds of, of fastidiousness, from the way I write computer programs to the way I sometimes feel like soiled when I use fossil fuels or eat factory farmed meat. It's just a, you know, it's coming out in a different, at a different, uh, expression than the, the stereotypical one. Uh, your type seems to be a combination of nature and nurture, and you might start expressing your type before you even start forming memories, or it might be much later than that. It seems to happen when you first experience trauma of one kind or another, the first time you really feel like something is deeply wrong with your life. Before that happens, you tend to resemble the type that you that your type moves toward when relaxed. I grew up in a very stable home, and on top of that, my parents took pains to make us kids believe things were more stable than they actually were. So for most of my childhood, I felt and acted like a seven, bouncing around to different interests, making all different kinds of art, cracking zany jokes in rapid succession after the fashion of Robin Williams or the Animaniacs, begging my parents for gimmicky toys and then losing interest in them almost immediately when I got them. It was in sixth grade at 11 years old that I first experienced something that, that deeply shook my sense of safety and security, and that's when I really started to feel like a one, worried about whether I was moral enough, terrified of the consequences of making mistakes, criticizing people, nitpicking my creative projects, 
taking things overly seriously and so on. On the other hand, my grandma is also a type 1, and if the legends are true, she started expressing it almost before she could walk. She was the oldest of many siblings, and her parents both had serious health issues. So she was saddled with this intense feeling of responsibility from a very early age. Some of the Enneagram resources describe a childhood pattern for each type, and for the type 1, my grandma expressed it almost exactly, this feeling of being the only adult in the room when you're, you're supposed to be enjoying your childhood. While for me that description wasn't really accurate because I was a late bloomer in terms of my personality. When you're trying to figure out your type, you want to consider yourself as you were in your mid-twenties, as that's when most of us are at peak ego. Younger than that, and we're still ramping up, older than that, and we're growing out of it to some extent. Um, healthy and self-actualized people are a little more difficult to type because they're less stuck in the traps of their personality, and they're more able to move around the Enneagram, tapping into the strengths of some of the other types. It's definitely true for me that I looked and felt much, much more like a 1 at 25 than I do now at 30, and that change is basically just due to personal growth over time. Anyway, let's continue where we left off now with the thinking center types, which is five types 5, 6, and 7. So the thinking center types are driven more by their thoughts, and their dominant negative emotions are fear, anxiety, and insecurity, as opposed to shame for the feeling center or anger for the instinctive center. While the feeling center types tend to be focused on the past, on these past sources of shame, and the instinctual center types tend to focus on rejecting or reacting against the present. The thinking center types tend to focus on the future, anticipating possible dangers or pleasures. Alright, so our first type here in the thinking center is the five, known as the investigator or the observer or the expert. Fives are driven by a need to feel capable, especially by a desire for knowledge, and by a fear of being incompetent or helpless. Fives are the most cerebral type, the most likely to live in their heads and, and not in their bodies. They tend to focus on one or a few areas of expertise and absorb as much information as they possibly can about that topic, which could be anything, but their interests often veer toward the weird, disturbing, or at least obscure and unconventional, because fives are not very interested in learning what other people already know. They want to carve out their own niche where they can be completely capable and experience uh, mastery that uh, is above the other people around them. Ironically, though, they tend to neglect their most basic bodily needs and tend to feel like they're fundamentally unable to participate in everyday life. Since they're terrified of feeling helpless, they tend to deny their needs and avoid developing their basic abilities to function, cooking, exercising, small talk, etc., and instead withdraw into their hobbies and interests where they feel more mastery. They only want to engage in the world through their area of mastery. They see their areas of expertise as an opportunity to someday be a full participant in society and not just an outside observer. When it comes to social life, fives usually want to be left alone to their intellectual pursuits, so they, they do get along easily with others who share their interests, and they can become very attached when they do form a stronger connection with someone. When fives are under stress, they take on some of the qualities of the seven, the adventurer, becoming more scatterbrained as they recklessly jump from idea to idea, hoping for satisfaction. Also, after neglecting their physical needs and retreating into their minds for too long, fives can suddenly shift into seeking unhealthy indulgences, junk food, substances, reckless sexual pursuits, like an unhealthy seven. 
On the other hand, though, by engaging with their stress more helpfully, they can use this impulse as a wake-up call to reconnect with the body and its impulses. When fives feel secure, they become more like type 8, the challenger. While in a less healthy way, this can present as being aggressive or confrontational, like, um, you know, they might be kind of competitive with their with their peers who share their same sort of area of expertise and challenge them on their knowledge. Healthy fives resemble eights by gaining more mastery over their environment and the details of their life. By focusing their curiosity and their powers of observation on the environment and on their bodies rather than on abstract concepts, and by engaging with their experiences as participants rather than as observers, um, fives can develop a more confident presence and a healthier relationship with their instinctual desires, like a healthy eight. They can take their naturally innovative way of thinking and apply it to solving practical real-world problems, often taking leadership roles while overcoming their fear of helplessness. Stereotypically, a five would be like the nerd with an encyclopedic knowledge of Dungeons and Dragons, but no clue how to bathe himself, talk to girls, or cook anything besides ramen noodles. Though in real life, they're not usually that easy to recognize. And their field of interest might be something, uh, you know, it might be cooking, or it might be piano, or it might be psychology, or history. Uh, it could be just about anything. In the media, my favorite example of a five is Fox Mulder from the X-Files. He had this childhood trauma when his sister was abducted by aliens, and he was frozen, utterly helpless to do anything about it. And since then... He's been completely obsessed with the paranormal. His investigative approach is to think outside the box, drawing on his mental library of, of old cases to help protect him from whatever weird and scary thing that the world can throw at him. Typical of fives, he only has one close relationship with his partner Scully, who has earned his trust. Anyway, another great example from fiction is Sherlock Holmes. Of course, as they're heroes right out of the gate, both Fox Mulder and Sherlock Holmes already possess a lot of the type 8 energy from the beginning, knowing how to fight, uh, knowing how to apply their skills to solve practical problems. Okay, on to type 6, the loyalist or the skeptic. I think I actually prefer the term loyal skeptic because 6s are both relentlessly questioning and completely unquestioning. 6s are driven by a need to feel supported and safe. They, they want to identify who and what they can trust and then having found it, they never want to feel doubt for a second. They never want to question it. I like to think of sixes as being uh, surrounded by this very defined boundary of trust. Everything inside the wall is trusted and safe and can't be questioned. Everything outside the wall is suspect. It's here, there be monsters. In that sense, it can be difficult to describe sixes because they're full of apparent contradictions. Their behavior toward everything outside the circle tends to be the opposite of every of their behavior toward everything inside the circle. And even aside from that boundary, they tend to oscillate between opposites. Courage and cowardice, engaging friendliness and coldness, vulnerability and defensiveness. In general, though, sixes are deeply anxious and they have trouble trusting their own inner guidance. So they always want to know that they have backup in the form of their trusted tribe and institutions and belief systems and so on. They want to construct a fortress of safety around them and their loved ones. In relationships, sixes can be incredibly good partners as they're deeply committed and responsible and trustworthy, but they also feel comfortable asking for help. But they can easily cling to unhealthy or abusive relationships as they're afraid of being on their own, and sometimes when they feel unsafe 
in, in a relationship, they'll try to test the other person's loyalty. When they're under stress, sixes become more like type three, the achiever, becoming more insincere, more image conscious, more workaholic, and more competitive as they try to hide their insecurities and conform to other people's ideals in order to attract people and keep them around. On the other hand, by engaging with their stress more healthfully, sixes can use this as an opportunity to set aside their anxieties for a bit and get the job done in a more flexible and adaptive way than they usually do. When they feel secure, sixes become more like type nine, the peacemaker, as they gain freedom from their anxieties and learn how to relax more. In a less healthy expression, this might look like them shutting down and becoming avoidant or passive-aggressive as finally enjoying a moment of peace apart from their anxieties, they don't want to be bothered. But as they become more healthy, sixes let go of their anxieties and become more accepting and inclusive, able to deal more graciously with their loved one's failings and able to be more hospitable to people and to ideas that haven't yet earned their trust. Like healthy nines, they become exceptionally good at finding common ground and bridging gaps between different groups of people. By making peace from their thoughts, they can allow their own inner wisdom to arise and they can finally achieve their goals of feeling safe and being part of a mutually supportive community. Sixes are fairly common in, out in the world and they're fairly common as heroes in fiction. Going back to the X-Files, Dana Scully is a great example of the loyal skeptic. In her case, she's decided to trust scientific dogma, and no matter how much crazy paranormal crap she sees in the field of duty, she's relentlessly skeptical of everything outside of accepted science. Though after the first season or so, she does trust Agent Mulder completely, if not his ideas. Harry Potter is another example of a six. So much of the drama of the Harry Potter series revolves around Harry trusting and helping Ron, Hermione, Hagrid, and Dumbledore without question, while being relentlessly suspicious of almost everyone else. Um, the whole the whole story is this shifting field of, you know, he's always wondering about people's loyalties. There's also Batman, especially in the Dark Knight trilogy. After the loss of his parents, fear is Batman's motivating emotion. He has a tiny inner circle of people he trusts completely, consisting of Alfred, Lucius Fox, Commissioner Gordon, and Rachel Dawes. And for everybody else, he puts on the mask of Bruce Wayne, billionaire playboy. This is the six becoming more like a deceptive three under stress. At the very end of the trilogy, we see Bruce finally relaxing, becoming more like a nine. Now, I should say not every depiction of Batman is a six. It's kind of where he tends to be. But like, take Lego Batman, for instance. In that movie, or in the Lego movie, um, Lego Batman is a three. And you can kind of see him moving toward the six in growth, becoming more able to form uh, loyal connections. But yeah, the, the Dark Knight trilogy is a good example of Batman as a six. Okay, so the final type in the thinking center, type seven, is the enthusiast or the adventurer or the epicure. Sevens are motivated by a desire for pleasure and satisfaction and by a fear of being trapped in painful or deprivating circumstances. Sevens tend to be optimistic, fun-loving, hands-on, wanting to focus on the positive and keep moving from pleasure to pleasure or from engagement to engagement. Easily excited, they tend to notice the good in every situation. They're pragmatic and usually very hardworking, but they have trouble with commitment and with spreading themselves too thin, and often with gluttony of one kind or another, whether with food or sex or alcohol or drugs. Um, they tend to be fast learners and have diverse interests, and they hate to be trapped without access to a broad diversity of experiences. 
partly because they don't feel like they're able to find what they really want. They might bounce around from career to career or partner to partner or social group to social group, afraid to commit to anything because they can't feel confident that it will be able to keep satisfying them in the future. Because of this, underneath their fun-loving facades, sevens often have a deeply hidden depression or insecurity, craving the deeper kind of satisfaction that comes from commitment, but doubting that they'll ever be able to experience it for themselves. When they're under stress, sevens become more like type one, the reformer or the perfectionist, as their indulgences bring out their harsh superegos to judge their actions, restrain their appetites, nitpick over their options, and try to impose an arbitrary order and structure over their lives. Also like ones, they can become sarcastic and nitpicking as they take out their frustration by criticizing other people and their opinions. On the other hand, by engaging with their stress in a healthy way, sevens can use that emergence of the superego to help them hit the brakes and notice how they might be causing harm to others through their uh, indiscretions. When they feel secure, sevens become more like fives, slowing down and withdrawing more easily. In a less healthy state, this might just look like preoccupied isolationism, say a, par a party animal suddenly deciding to stay in his room all day and, and read or watch Netflix. But as they grow, sevens learn to analyze and observe their experiences more deliberately, like a five. Basically, they learn how to experience the deeper satisfactions of savoring, and uh, they learn how to focus on their real interests, not, not through the judgmental kind of discernment of the one, but through a more organic process of listening deeply to themselves and to what brings them joy, of internalizing their experiences. Like all the Enneagram types, by letting go of their personality's obsessions, sevens can, be, can paradoxically satisfy their deepest desires. By letting go of the fear of being trapped, deprived of satisfaction, they can sink into their experiences and experience the much deeper satisfaction that comes from sticking around and, and sinking into to life. At their best, sevens are incredibly versatile and they help everyone around them to appreciate life's pleasures. Jack Sparrow from the Pirates of the Caribbean franchise is a seven. Freedom is his highest ideal, though it gets him into trouble. Think of the random women we see coming up and slapping him in Tortuga. I deserve that. That's a glimpse of the self-criticism that comes out under stress. Interestingly, Jack Sparrow carries a magic compass that points to your heart's desire, which is something I think a lot of sevens would find useful, especially if it can show you what you really want, if it knows you better than you know yourself. Uh, Maria von Trapp from The Sound of Music would be another example, and she really demonstrates where sevens can shine in helping those around them to reconnect with the joy in ordinary life. Alright, so that wraps up the Thinking Center types. In the next episode, we'll cover the last three Enneagram types, uh, 8, 9, and 1, which comprise the Instinctive Center, and we'll wrap up our overview of the Enneagram. And now it's time for the spell of the week. The spell of the week this week is enchanting an amulet to help you quiet your thoughts. All right, so today we're discussing the thinking center types and one of the challenges that all three face is in quieting their train of thought and accessing their more intuitive wisdom. So this spell can help. First of all, you want to make or obtain an amulet, i.e. a necklace, featuring some kind of symbol or object that feels calming. I leave that as an exercise to the listener. 
If you make one, though, you'll want to try to quiet your thoughts as much as possible while making it, as it'll be much more powerful that way. Next, you want to take a few drops of lavender essential oil and blend it with about a quarter cup of a carrier oil. In this case, you could use just plain old vegetable oil as you're not going to be applying it to your skin. But if you prefer, you could use something fancier like sesame oil or avocado oil or my personal go-to sunflower oil. Store this blend in a small container. Um, and you want to store it uh, out of the light, like in, in a dark, dry place. Now, every morning before you put on the amulet, you want to spend about 30 seconds gently rubbing some of this oil into the amulet with your fingers, holding it close enough to be able to smell the lavender while you meditate. It can be hard for many people to quiet their thoughts, but it's just 30 seconds, and you can go right back to worrying afterward if you want. Anybody can meditate for 30 seconds. So focus on the smell of the lavender and the sensation of moving your fingers over the amulet while you quiet your thoughts and rub the oil in. Okay, so you do that every morning before you put the amulet on. If you need to, you can wipe the amulet off afterward with a paper towel so the excess oil doesn't stain your clothes. Now, throughout the day, whenever you need a break from your thoughts, just gently rub the amulet, taking in the calming lavender scent, and feel it embracing you with its quieting power. You can find the Placebo Magic Podcast and my poetry and other writing on the web at farmcodegary.com. Send your feedback to farmcodegary at protonmail.com and let me know if I can read your feedback on the show. Music is by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com and licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 license. You can support the show by giving us a review on your podcast app of choice, sharing an episode with a friend, or becoming a Patreon supporter at patreon.com slash placebo magic. Patreon supporters also gain access to our Patreon-exclusive bonus show. Remember, magic is a metaphor, and metaphor is magical. <laughs> <laughs>